It was probably remiss of me to say that the over-50s team did the marathon in less than four hours. Eh? Yeah, I think so. Now, I have to say there was a flaw because we could have done better. I'll come to the Oddersons and the McNeils and the Cairnduffs and, and all a bit. And, uh, who have I left out? There's somebody I've left out of that team. Matthew, what a start. What a first leg this man did. Having said that, Desi Alexander was on me far too quick as well. I don't know what speed he was doing. But um, 3.32 or something? 3.32 for the younger team. Now, we notice there's a sort of a, we're bereft of 30s and 40s. So just warning you for next year. And there's rumors of women's teams as well. But uh, our team would have done better had it not been that Ian McMurray stuck with me who foolishly did another leg. Foolishly, really foolishly. But there was one point, and we might come back to this later on. I was quite astounded by the support of crowds. Go on, the Millers. Um, The crowds on North Belfast were quite sensational. It didn't matter whether you were under uh, Sinn Féin election posters or PUP election posters. People were out cheering you, clapping you, giving you orange, all kinds of stuff. It was really quite remarkable. And I didn't realize how much that kind of made you go too fast, which I did. So I'm cruising up the Antrim Road. It's quite... Get out of the car the next time and walk up the Antrim Road. I tell you, that's something. But I thought, actually, I was looking at my watch and I was cruising along and I was waving at the crowd and everything was going great and I was getting to the top of the hill and this wee man came out from the side of the road and said, give me a high five, sir, because you look as if you need all the help you can get. (laughs) I'm glad he didn't see me at the 11th mile because that was pretty crazy. So um, anyway, um, thank you for those who've sponsored. There's some money has been raised and if you do feel that we were mad enough to give some to the building fund, please uh, tell your friends and family, etc., etc. Who am I looking out at today? When we gather in to pray at a quarter to eleven, we pray for the congregation gathering most weeks. Who are you? Who am I looking out at? The interesting thing is that I see all of you every Sunday. You're not aware of that, probably sitting there. Oh, he doesn't see me. I see all of you. And there's times when I see people that I didn't know were here, maybe visitors or friends, and I, my heart gets a wee lift halfway through a sermon. And go, oh, look who's there. And then there's other days when you look down and there's some esteemed minister of the church and you go, oh, no, not this morning. You see everybody. So who do I see? Who am I looking at? Because I'm looking, as I've said a couple of times already at this, I love that word, the menagerie of foibles and quirks and interesting personalities and journeys and gifts and abilities and all kinds of stuff. But I'm looking at something else as well. I'm looking at the new community that Jesus was launching as he said these words to his disciples in John chapter 14. That's who I'm looking at. Here is the community of God, a new community that Jesus ushered in when he came down to earth, the word made flesh, as we thought about way back at the start of this series in John. And when we were looking at this series in John, we asked that question way back in September or whatever. Who was John writing this gospel to? What was his target audience? Because what we've realized as we've gone through John is how carefully he has edited this gospel account. And we realized early on that John was writing this story of Jesus 
to a community of believers, probably a Judean audience in Ephesus in the late first century, and all was not well with being a Christian at that particular time in the empire. There were battles between God and Caesar. You had to make those decisions in your life as to which one you were going to have allegiance to. There would have been some persecution. Wouldn't have been easy to be a Christian when this gospel account was written. John has the community and the encouragement of the community very much in his thoughts as he was writing these words. And he was also very high in his Christology we talked about, of who Jesus was and how Jesus connected with the world and the earth. And in these words, how Jesus connects with us in our lives. That it's not just somebody we remember back then or some event that we remember when the, uh, the Lord's table's out here and we take bread and wine. It's something more than that. It's something that we are connected into in the here and now. The cycle, it's taken over the whole place. And you know, I think cycling wheels, it's a shortcut you should be running. But uh, I was reasonably impressed with five hours in the saddle and then that sprint finished yesterday, I have to say. But a friend of mine who made an album recently talked about the whole album's based around cycling and how it's the 10 yards of where you're cycling that's important. It's not where you've been. It's not necessarily where you're going. It's about here and now. And what John's clearly telling the community of believers at the end of the first century and now in the 21st century is this, that Jesus is not something way back there or something way forward there, but Jesus connects with us right here. Jesus is God and he makes his home with us. He and the Father are one. We're one with him and the Father. There's this amazing connection. If you remember back to the start of this series, I had just come out of a summer where I'd read N.T. Wright's When God Became King, and I was saying there was four things that Wright would be saying that the gospel, all four gospels, represents. Jesus fulfilling the vocation of Israel. Jesus as God's presence, or Messiah. The launch of God's new people. And the clash of the kingdoms, Caesar versus God. And it's all in here, in this one chapter, in chapter 14 of John's Gospel. But I want to talk about it today under that idea, because I think as we've come up through the Gospel, and we've seen who Jesus is, we've seen how Jesus relates to people, and we've seen how Jesus says, this is what life in all its fullness is, and here are some of the clues to living it, that somehow when we come to 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, the washing of the disciples' feet, that moment where we come around the Lord's Supper, and into John 14, we're seeing where this is basically Jesus getting the disciples around and saying, right guys, I've shown them all this, shown you all this stuff, I'm leaving, not going to leave you as orphans, but I'm going as you see me now. And so let me have this chat with you, almost like we're in the, the dressing room before we go out to live this match. The new world order. Let me talk you through some stuff. Because when you're out in this journey, and for those at the end of the first century, and for those in the 21st century, you're going to need to know some stuff and have confidence in some stuff, or you're no way going to be able to live this dream. So let me tell you what the dream looks like, what the life looks like, and then let me tell you how you're going to be able to live it and have confidence in it. I think that's what's going on 
here in chapter 14. So let me draw just three things out. That's a bit Presbyterian for me, but let's do it. One of the things I love about this chapter, and I've always loved about this chapter, and I think is quite crucial about it, and it's there twice. If you love me, keep my commands, Jesus said in verse 15. Or verse 23, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. If you love me, you will keep my commands. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. <clears throat> Leslie Newbigin talks in his uh, brilliant commentary on John about this, and he, he says this, he says, to speak of love apart from obedience would open up the way to a purely emotional and sentimental life. To speak of obedience apart from love would open up the way to slave mentality. Two things there. To speak of love apart from obedience would open up the way to some purely emotional kind of feely-weely whatever. To speak of obedience apart from love would open the way to a slave mentality. The relationship between love and obedience is crucial because relationship is the crucial point of how we're going to live an obedient life. If we have this idea that we're going to love God because if we don't love God, this is going to happen, we're going to be spiritually very maladjusted. If the only reason that we are committed to Jesus is because if we don't love God, oh my word, just look what's ahead of us, then that's going to damage psychologically and spiritually who God is and how we live. But if we love God because of who he is, because of how we have related to, and our relationship and love to God is that kind of love that says, I'm going to obey you because I love you, then that changes why you obey. That changes why you live. If you love me. I always tell the story, and I have to be careful because my wife's here and it wasn't my wife, but uh, when I was 19 and had no idea what a wonderful wife was, I was dabbling with less appropriate possibilities. (laughs) (laughs) And I was living just over there, Union College, and there was a payphone. Do you remember those? <clears throat> well, 20p's were as much as the payphone could take, but there was this inappropriate possibility, and I wanted to phone her. So I'd go down Botanic every day into Gardner's, do you remember that? And he would try and work out how much you would have to buy to get as much change back as you possibly could for that phone, to shove it in. And I used to say to youth groups all the time, you didn't want to talk to people, oh, better, I'm going out with that girl, I better phone her. Oh, if I don't phone her, you know the hammering I'm going to get. You phoned because you wanted to phone, you wanted to talk, you wanted to listen, you wanted to be in the presence. Not because you had to, because you wanted to. That's what this is about. If you love me, it will change your life. Marriage is a revolutionary idea. Much harder in this generation probably than any other generation, I would suggest. Because in our self-indulgent, wanting everything for me, even love has come down to the feeling that I get from love. Rather than what love is. Which is doing the Jesus thing to everybody else. But when you love doing the Jesus thing to other people, 
is very different than having to. If you love me, you will obey what I command. If you love me, if you have the right understanding of me, if you've got into this relationship with me, as we've been just inclining around this table and John has been actually leaning his head upon Jesus' chest, when we get into that kind of intimacy, when we get into that kind of understanding, then that changes why we do things. And obedience is what this is all about. Not obedience to make us slaves, but obedience that sets us free. Obedience that sets us free. I had freedom to do last, um, uh, <clears throat> when I do Vanessa Phelps on a Tuesday morning. Well, it's Tuesday morning, this series, and Radio 2. They give you titles and you were given freedom. And I give them this idea last week. I, I took them on this two-minute journey where I told them to take a Formula One car to the top of Slimish. bet you some of them didn't know where that was. Uh, or the mountain near them. And I said, just set it on the way down the mountain and then get out and let the handbrake off and watch that Formula One car just speed up as it heads down the mountain. Just look at it, get into Formula One. <laughs> Stupid car. Totally free. And it had a wall. Duh. Because a Formula One car is not meant to be free in an anarchic, anarchic kind of way. Formula One cars meant to be obedient to a driver that knows what to do with it. And if you ask a Formula One car what freedom is, it's on the fastest track with the best driver and being obedient to that driver. If you love me, you will obey my commands. And when you're obedient, you will find what life and life in all its fullness is. I do think that the self-indulgent world has made this love and obedience relationship difficult because we do expect love to be something that we get from more than we give. I also think, and let me, let me get this absolutely right because I think this has been a, a major positive in Christianity, but we live in the Yancey generation. What's so amazing about grace changed the whole way that we think about grace and God's love, and that was desperately needed. Charles Swindle's books maybe a little bit more theological and there's other books much more deeper theological than that. But what we began to understand, at least the generation I worked with when I was a chaplain, began to understand that we were loved as we were. And really for a long time, even when we preached that we were loved as we were, and even when we preached grace, we were still slaves to something that was different. But the problem I find with it is maybe we've become so grace-orientated that we've forgotten that the love obedience relationship is very very close and Jesus is saying to them here look you've seen all this stuff I've been doing you've seen this way that I've been living this is a radically different way than the world around you and I want you to live this way and be obedient to me this way because if you're obedient to me in this way then you're going to be free and then you're going to change the world and how are you going to be obedient because you love me change the world the world doesn't understand it Jesus says to them here doesn't understand what's going on. Doesn't understand this Holy Spirit coming. Doesn't understand all this stuff. The world doesn't understand it, but you'll understand it because you will know me and him and the Spirit will come and dwell within you and you will see this that nothing, nobody else sees. That's good to remember in the 21st century. It's good to remember in the 21st century when we're trying to take this journey of obedience because we love God and because we're living out this new community of following Jesus that the world's going to look at us and think, I'm not going for that. Now, you see, it's not as black and white as that because the world, the world wants love. 
The world wants to know what life in all its fullness is. The world wants light in the darkness. The world wants prayer answered. Even those who don't believe in God pray. When Manchester City are one down in an injury time today. Or whenever there's a huge crisis in people's lives. Somehow they start to think of bigger trans, trans, transcendence. They want somebody outside of themselves that's going to... So the world actually, on some level, wants what we have. But then when it comes down to how you get it, the cost of it, the giving up of money, sex, and power, that Roger Foster book from way back in the 80s, that summed it all up. These are the things the world's after. And if you say to the world, actually, it's not about money, sex, and power. It's about poverty, it's about love, and it's about humility. Whatever I want, it doesn't sound like that, because they don't get it, because they don't understand it, because they haven't got the Spirit telling them the secret to the universe. But these are hard words. Obedience. Living as opposed to the way the world lives. Living an alternative world in the midst of the world. How could we possibly do that? And we'll think about it. When we go to John 14, these disciples are not showing much cop at being able to do it. How can they do it? Well, here's the secret. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father. And he will send you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever. The Spirit of truth further on. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Jesus is saying here, this is the way I want to live. This is what I'm launching. This is tough living. Gloriously free living. Gloriously fulfilled living. Life in all its fullness. But in the world you live in, it's going to seem strange and crazy and difficult because it goes against the grain of what's going on around you. And here's the only way you're going to be able to do it. I'm going to live within you to help you do it, to allow you to do it, to encourage you to do it. Parakletos is the Greek word that's used for Holy Spirit here. Only three times in the New Testament in that form right here in John, these chapters of John. It means, as lots of Why is it that all other languages, when you translate them into English, you need five or six English words to translate them? Our language just seems so, I don't know, it just seems so third division or something. Um, But the English words that we might be able to put in here for what the Holy Spirit's going to be, this advocate word, would be a a calling. It would call us, it would beseech us, it would entreat us, it would comfort us, it would console us, it would exhort us. Now, it's a different word than what, if you remember back to chapter 3 when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus and he talked about being born from the Spirit from above and he he talked about the wind blowing wherever it pleases. And that word pneuma means something slightly different. It's almost that the pneuma Holy Spirit word is the Holy Spirit that gives us energy, gives us enthusiasm. It gives us this inner dynamic that allows us to live this life. But what Jesus talked about here is something a little bit more of a comforter, consoler, somebody who's alongside us, somebody who helps us through it, somebody that's there in our time of need, somebody that answers our call. When people go through bereavement, I will always send them a little message that says, 
I hope that Jesus has proved right when he called the Spirit a comforter. A comforter. What did that mean? A consoler. Somebody who's a helper. Somebody who's there. It's like that crowd on Monday in the marathon. When you're running and you're feeling you have no energy left and suddenly people start clapping. They're like comforters. They're consolers. They're advocates. They're they're people who lift you literally on the journey. Or when you're in that deep point of grief and you have no idea how you get through it and somebody comes and just sits with you and they say nothing. They give you no genius. They don't fix it. They're just there. Their presence is just so comforting and consoling that it gets you through it. This is what Jesus is talking about as the Holy Spirit here. Somebody who will be our advocate, somebody who will be a presence, somebody who will be there to see us through. And as I thought about that, I couldn't help go back this week to a song that Dave Thompson wrote. And he wrote it about Mo and about John Montgomery. And it's on the album that I'm sure many of you have. But here's some of the words of that song. Um, Campfires and Wild Places, or Wild Places and Campfires. I think it's uh, Campfires and Wild Places, at least if it isn't, it should be, because that sounds better, Dave, if you're not here, but listen to the recording. Uh, these are the words, and listen to these good. So let these clouded peaks and wind-blown slopes lighten my thoughts and bring me hope. Let these running streams give my heart fire. The forest trails leave me inspired. Listen. To live set free and not in fear. To know eternity starts here. I am loved and I am held and cannot fall. I am loved and I am held and cannot fall. God's presence, loving us in the obedience and us in our love obeying him, but holding us, being there with us through all the different times. That's powerful stuff if you're a Judean community in Ephesus at the end of the late first century and you're finding it hard to keep the faith because the world doesn't understand you. Finding it hard to obey when there's so many temptations to compromise. To know that we are held and we are loved. To know that we have an advocate. To know that that advocate, wonderful and all as they were, aren't the people of North Belfast, but they're the eternal God in us, around us, before us, with us. I couldn't help but imagine it's a bit like this, and it's an earthly human illustration, and it doesn't do for try and explain God. But if you weren't out there yesterday, watching them pass like that, If you didn't queue for three hours to see them going past, then you were lazy like me, and you were watching it on television, and what a spectacle yesterday afternoon was. I'm not a cycle fan. I had no idea. Never heard of the Giro. Didn't know about pink, whatever that was. But you're watching them coming down this coastline. You've driven that coastline, and you've got into first gear at times and thought, your car's not going to get up this hill. They've been out there for five hours. In the rain and the wind. They're coming down the coast near home. And there's three guys that are five minutes ahead. You're going, is that clever to just be getting a banana out of that car and putting it in your back pocket when these guys are five minutes ahead? You're thinking, how do they know that they're going to catch them? How do they know? 
Because the evidence says they're not going to. And even the commentator got a wee bit shaky at one point and thought, this guy could win it. And then suddenly round the corner on the shore road, these guys just eat him up. How did they know? They had confidence. They had confidence. They had energy within them. A lot of energy to cycle for five hours around that course. But they also had a confidence that in spite of the evidence, they had a hope and they knew they were going to catch the guys that were way out in front. And they did. Jim Wallace came back to me. Believe in spite of the evidence. Watch the evidence change. Now we're believing with evidence around us of a world that's getting less and less Christian, more and more difficult to be obedient to God. How do we have the confidence that those cycle riders had yesterday? Well, Jesus is trying to give us that here. He's trying to lay it out for us. Yes, it's high in Christology. I am God and look, I've been around you. But it's more than that. It's saying, look, I'm in you. Do you believe that? This struggle that you have this morning, the evidence that's around you this morning, do you believe what we've just read here? I'm your advocate. I'll be your consoler. I'll be your comforter. I'll be your presence. I will be with you in spite of the evidence of your life. And you can watch me and you, and me in you, change that evidence. Have we the confidence of the peloton? Do we know this Jesus? Do we love this Jesus? Is the obedience in our lives giving us confidence that we do because we're seeing the Holy Spirit work within us on a daily basis? Because if we do, And I guess what happened yesterday was this. They'd caught that guy that was five minutes in front many, many, many times. So when we love and obey, when we know we're loved and we're held, and we stick with this journey, there will be more confidence as the journey goes on that these words are true. God has set up his home in you and in us. How can that be? Praise God, it's true. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we are loved and we are held and we cannot fall. Lord, we will struggle. We will tumble. We will stumble. We will be damaged and hurt. But in those times... Your word tells us that you will be an advocate, a consoler, a comforter, a presence who will pick us up, who will cheer us on, who will give us an inner strength to get through. We thank you that we can believe in spite of the evidence going on in our own lives, in spite of the evidence going on in the world around us, that God is alive, not only in the world, but in us. May we know that, Lord. And may we hear the call of your kingdom to live this community and believe that we can live this new community not because of our own abilities or our own PhDs or our own religiosity or the fact we can quote scripture, but because your spirit dwells within us. May we know that this week, Lord. May we see what the world will not see as we see God at work within us, helping us to launch a community 
that is a light to the nations. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.